Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. History friends, patrons all, and welcome to this, our first installment and the introductory episode on the biography of Jan Selbieski. This intro is coming to all listeners and patrons to give everyone a flavour of what's to come. From next week onwards though, this story will be continued exclusively on the Extra Feed, which as we all know, is available to all patrons of the $5 level or higher. If you'd like to avail of this wonderful expansion of When Diplomacy Fails' content, which includes over an hour of extra stuff every month, as well as early ad-free access to a regular episodic schedule, then be sure to go to the usual places, dwdfpodcast.com, click on the Patreon banner, or patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. For those of you just stopping by out of pure curiosity though, or for those of you that have already become lovely patrons and might be just curious about what's to come for the next three months... Welcome, welcome, welcome to this very exciting biography miniseries on the life and times of Jan Sobieski, military badass and king of the Poles in an era when the Commonwealth was unfortunately lacking in either badasses or good quality kings. Since what follows Sobieski's reign in 1698 is the Saxon House of Wetton, a somewhat unfavourably judged dynasty in the Commonwealth's history which takes it into the 1760s, you can also see this series as a kind of prequel to the far larger and more insanely ambitious Polish history miniseries, which, yeah, a bit of a spoiler, it's more of a, a major series rather than a miniseries at this point, but it's all good. So this major or mini series is going to be released, all going according to plan, on the one-year-ish anniversary of the Extra Feed going live, so say March Late March, early April 2018. I'm really excited about that and I've been doing a lot of background preparation work. So if you guys are interested in Polish history, maybe even just a passing interest in Polish history, you should really look forward to that because all listeners are going to be getting that. But if you're especially interested in what came before and you want to know a little bit more about that era, keep on listening. As we'll see in the next 12 episodes in this series, well, including this one, Sobieski was a profoundly important character, and not only because he appeared at the last siege of Vienna in the nick of time. No, you see, while in 1683 Sobieski's contribution to that event is undeniable, the king had arrived to fulfil and continue the conflict, or series of conflicts, he had waged against the Ottoman Turks and their vassals for the majority of his life. It was a struggle which consumed his homeland from the late 1640s, and it was also a deeply personal battle for him, 
because it took the lives of so many of his relatives. It of course dramatically shaped his homeland too, and over the course of those series of conflicts which the intensely aggressive Ottoman Empire fought, the Poles often gave as good as they got until, tiring perhaps of the uninspiring candidates, the Poles chose a man who had always been a leader of men. After that watershed election, Poland, or more accurately the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, enjoyed a boost in prestige, prosperity and notoriety, bookended of course by the rescue effort at the last siege of Vienna. As a story, Sobieski's is one that clearly crosses over into our own, and which has been in the background of our narrative as we looked at the Anglo-Dutch Wars, the Swedish Deluges and Franco-Dutch Wars, so I feel it would be wrong to leave it out altogether. That said, patrons get it above everyone else because, again, yes, keeping with my policy to induce as many history friends as possible to sign up and because, as you know, this is now officially partly my job, which, yes, is very exciting, I feel like it's a story worthy of your guys' time and investment in when diplomacy fails. If you use it as an accompaniment to the ongoing narrative flowing concurrent to this, which blows up to the last siege of Vienna, then you'll be well-placed to gain as even-handed and broader perspective on that seismic event as possible. This episode here, while identifying as an introductory episode, will also serve as a kind of teaser, like a handy introduction into the world of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which we're soon to be very familiar with, and even more super familiar with, if you join us for the mini-major series next spring. Yet in this episode I'll also have a chance to set out some historiographical context, which in normal person's language means that I have to allude to my sources. While I possess the famous narratives of Davies and Zamoyski, I am also fortunate to have in my possession a biography of Jan Sobieski. Don't ask me where I got it because I can't remember, but it's written by a man whose name I will certainly butcher the pronunciation of, so I'm going to say it as little as I possibly can. The author's name, and if you're ready for this, Miltiades Varvunas. Sorry, sir, if I pronounced your name wrong, but his personal connection to Sobieski is that he claims to be a Greek scholar of Polish descent. You should know that Varvunas's book, while sound in the research spectrum, of course, could have done with an editor before going to press. With that in mind, sometimes I will change words or phrasing around in the rare cases when citing directly from him didn't quite make sense. I mean, in fairness to the guy, I get the feeling that English is his third or even fourth language, so I'm going to cut him a bit of slack. Other than that, it's necessary to talk for a second about terminology. For the record, you probably knew this was coming because I've been referring to it as so many different names already, but... For the record, the state of Poland wasn't exactly a thing in this era, in the same way that the state of Austria wasn't really a thing until it was defined as such later on in that curious polity's life cycle. In many ways, the difficult-to-define Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth mirrors the Holy Roman Empire. Both of them contained noble and ambitious democratic ideals in their own way. They both ended up failing due to the individual ambitions of the persons meant to be looking out for their homeland's interests, and nationalist historians since have alluded to both, particularly in the 19th century, as examples of why the so-called nation-state must be the natural order of things, because these massive messes of states failed so miserably. History is typically messy, but for the sake of convenience, we're not going to dive into technicalities like that in this miniseries. You should know that most saw the state of Poland as a commonwealth, or a noble's republic, or a monarchical republic or an elective monarchy, and they did refer to it simply as a republic or a commonwealth, 
so we're going to largely do the same to the best of our abilities. The Polish element of that Commonwealth was referred to as the Crown, while the Lithuanian element was often referred to as the Grand Duchy or simply again the Commonwealth. Within the Polish Crown lands lived Germans, Slavs, Ruthenians, Russians and all sorts of individuals including Poles, so it would be just as inaccurate to call the whole arrangement Poland as it would be to call the Netherlands Holland all the time, though of course having stated that here, I'm anything but consistent. I am aware it's a bit confusing at the best of times, and I should add that for the sake of our own convenience, I'll often refer to the Commonwealth as Poles if a majority fought in that sphere, while I will do my best to single out the other peoples where possible. Between its curious relationship with its nobility, its elective monarchy even though it was supposedly a republic, its various subject peoples and its incredibly varied cultures and contradictions within that, perhaps the only state more confusing and unusual to our nationalised senses in this era was the Commonwealth's significant other neighbour, the Holy Roman Empire. You see, we're not here to unpack how these polities worked mercifully. Instead, we're here to tell the story of one of its most significant citizens. So, I hope you'll forgive me if I sometimes abandon consistency for the sake of a tidy narrative. Jan Sobieski was in fact a member of the nobility which dominated this commonwealth. He would have the misfortune to reign just at the point where the previously sincere constitution of the Commonwealth had come to be manipulated by the nobles, with the most infamous example being the Liberum Veto. Through the Liberum Veto, which we will get into later on in the series, and in the Polish major series as well in spring, nobles could literally paralyse the legislation and inner workings of the Commonwealth and prevent anything from being done for the sake of their own interests. All they had to do was literally say that they objected to what was going on, and that was that. Such problems emerged during the rapidly deteriorating position of the Commonwealth in the second half of the 17th century, and really the second half of the 17th century is literally the downhill slide of the Poles, the Commonwealth, and everything else to do with that republic. Because it was in that half of the 17th century that, for a number of reasons, the Commonwealth entered through the meat grinder and came out the other side utterly transformed for all the wrong reasons. Yet one of the great and in many senses tidy things about Sobieski's life is the fact that he served as a kind of weather vane of the Commonwealth's practical power. And you'll see what I mean as we get into later episodes, but for example if Sobieski was able to field an army and raise it and pay for it etc, then that meant that the Commonwealth was doing well that campaigning season. If Sobieski was unable to find one or if he had to make use of extensive favours in order to get a campaign off the ground, then that probably meant that petty jealousies and factionalism had taken root again for the moment. We have to bear in mind as well that when Sobieski was born in 1629, the Commonwealth was the undisputed master of the eastern portion of Europe. It represented the crossroads between the cultured West and the barbarous Rus. Its very cultural experience reflects this. During Sobieski's lifetime in particular, it became vogue among Poles and other Commonwealth nobles, especially while on campaign, to emulate their more exotic oriental neighbours to the Far East in both dress and military tactics. Sobieski looked favourably upon the so-called Sarmatian style of dress, and many wealthier Poles like to think of themselves as Sarmatian warriors while on campaign, since they could afford these striking robes and fashions which gave them that mysterious oriental identity. Poles, Lithuanians, Ruthenians, Germans and others that lived under the Commonwealth's banner defined themselves by their multiculturalism. Their dress and favour shown towards the exotic and different 
were necessary characteristics of a polity which contained far too many disparate identities to define itself as one thing or another, like Polish or Lithuanian or German. The remarkable thing, though, and without generalising too much here, is that there was no underlying national tension really to speak of, with the exception maybe, later on in the Commonwealth's existence, of Polish and Lithuanian tension, but even that gets sorted out later on in the Commonwealth's life cycle. So there was no Poles keeping Germans down and there was no Lithuanians looking down upon the Slavs. For the most part, at least for the most part, the Commonwealth enjoyed an admirable degree of national harmony. By the time of Sobieski's death in 1696, though, the situation had utterly changed. The Commonwealth was no longer the undisputed power of the east-central crossroads of Europe. The mantle was now actively being challenged by Russia, while the Ottomans, although beaten back and relatively humbled in the war that was recently waged, had torn the heart out of the Commonwealth's ability to effectively resist the enemy for the foreseeable future. This was because, during Sobieski's lifetime, there was over five decades of relatively constant warfare, from the moment of Bogdan Khmelnytsky's Cossack Revolt in 1648 to the signing of the Treaty of Karlowitz with the Ottomans in 1699. This period of warfare contained moments of respite, for sure, but just as surely as the Thirty Years' War contained its own moments of comparative... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In action or rebuilding, there was rarely a time when, somewhere in the Commonwealth, a battle was not being fought, a raid was not being repulsed, or a campaign was not being planned. When we come to examine the life of Jan Sobieski in all of this, it becomes clear just how pivotal a role the man played in the era. Several times over, did Sobieski actually save the Commonwealth from being overwhelmed? At times the man was simply fortunate, but other times he displayed a kind of bravery, a kind of ingenuity, and above all, a brand of patriotism which would come to define his legend and persona, for generations to come. Little wonder that Poles under foreign occupation from the 1790s onwards looked to the example set by their former king as the last great grasp of a patriotic figure who, defeating his enemies in virtually every sphere, 
came to be consumed by the very stately apparatus he attempted to serve. In many ways, then, Sobieski's is a tragic story. Even while he waged his successful campaigns, ill omens presaging the Commonwealth's downturn and imminent doom were commonplace. The sheer unwieldiness of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, even in its name, it's unwieldy, but this was combined with the growing power of its neighbours, the treaties made without due consideration of the consequences, and the increasing jealousy and self-interest of the nobles with regard to their ancient constitutional rights. All of these were symptoms of the disease which racked the Polish-Lithuanian state. They had been kept in check in the past by rapid growth, economic expansion and military organisation, and the accepted power of the monarchy. The Commonwealth did find its neighbours relatively docile and easily coexisted alongside them in the first half of the 17th century. Successful wars were fought against Sweden, the ultimate enemy, because it was led by the Protestant House of Vasa rather than the Catholic Polish House of Vasa. These were combined with humiliations of Russia, which culminated in the sack of Moscow and the placing of King Sigismund III's son, Vladislav, on the throne as the Tsar of Russia. Yeah, the Poles actually did that, guys. Sigismund, of course, was able to make great political capital out of Russia's time of troubles, a time where in Russia, phony czars popped up everywhere and loyalties were spread wafer thin amongst the impoverished Russian nobility. The Russian time of troubles seemed to uncomfortably mirror the Commonwealth's domestic situation by the turn from the 17th to the 18th century. In 1700, just as in 1600, the European rule of law stated that if weakness existed, many would flock to exploit it. If this biography will serve as an indication of where the Commonwealth was headed, it will also serve as a convenient glimpse into the military tactics of the age, and the incredibly dazzling sight created by the winged hussars, for example. I know you guys must be looking forward to that, because... Yowza, that's a pretty incredible sight. And I don't say Yowza very often, but yeah, the winged hussars, they don't mess about. They were cavalry most famous for their relief effort at the Siege of Vienna. But the fact that the Siege of Vienna forms our penultimate episode in this series should demonstrate that Jan Sobieski, and really his homeland itself, grants us far too much content and anecdotes to just ignore and fast forward to 1683. This biography, I really have to emphasise, it's not a retelling of the last siege as we gave in the main episodic schedule. It's designed to be a focused, unique and, well, yeah, hopefully entertaining telling of the story of one of Europe's most important yet understudied monarchs. I say understudied because while native and older literature does exist about the man, I really wish I could read Polish, because that would be so handy. A surprising lack of recent efforts to study the man's life and times does hamper us somewhat. It should also be added that at times this biography may seem more like our fake history than when diplomacy fails, because we'll be forced to deal with several myths surrounding Sobieski's life and times. Did Sobieski's birth really usher in a thunderstorm? Probably not. Was he universally loved and gratefully received by all of his subjects and nobles after the Siege of Vienna? Unfortunately not. Was he always a force for good in the Commonwealth's history? Not necessarily, as we'll see. So what lies before you is a story of a man, a myth, and a homeland. At the same time, it's also a love story and a story of dynastic ambition. Sobieski was married to one of the ladies-in-waiting of the former Polish queen, Marie, 
and Sobieski would come to find his wife somewhat more politically active and ambitious at home than he was by his nature. In addition, some have suggested that his wife Marie pushed him in the first place to seek the throne in the aftermath of his great victory, a victory greater perhaps than any other in his life, but one you've probably not heard of because it occurred ten years before the last siege of Vienna. This was the Battle of Kochim in November 1673. After the victory outside Vienna ten years later, Sobieski engaged in a policy which afterwards drew much criticism from both his contemporaries and subsequent historians. In his campaigns against the Ottomans, Sobieski attacked the Ottoman vassals of Moldavia and Wallachia in an attempt to establish a secure inheritance for his sons. Furthermore, in the face of the unreliability of the Habsburgs, the king made great efforts to empower and ally with the Hungarians at the Habsburgs' expense. Such actions seem unjustifiable in light of what was at stake, but I will argue throughout this biography that we must, at all times, place ourselves in Sobieski's shoes. For example, one glaring criticism of him is that he waged war for too long after the last siege of Vienna. Well, I'm here to tell you that he continued the costly war with the Ottomans after the last siege because he believed that his great enemy in the Ottomans, the enemy that had cost him, his country, his family so much, were finally on the ropes after so many years of struggle. So he sought secure inheritance for his sons in an effort to ensure that they possessed the wealth and strength to hold on to the Polish crown, because he wanted to make the Polish crown hereditary, despite what the indignant nobility said. Because he believed that this would override the lagging and weakened Commonwealth constitution and that the Commonwealth would literally swallow itself up if it didn't have a strong leader leading it. Sobieski did believe that such reforming and, in his case, dynastic self-interest was necessary, because if it wasn't done, then the Commonwealth would easily be overcome by its more absolutist and centralised neighbours, who were better able to gauge and use their resources and direct them wherever they wanted to. History has judged Sobieski harshly for this. For example, in his great tome on the history of Poland, Norman Davies noted that It is true that Sobieski did not possess much freedom of manoeuvre. He was constrained by the egoism of the magnates, whose stranglehold on political life could not easily be released, and by the obstinacy of the Ottoman port, which in this one period insisted on regarding the Republic as its enemy. But that is merely to enunciate the central political dilemmas of Sobieski's career. It does not excuse 17 years of ruinous warfare, which banished all chance of repairing the Republic's structural weaknesses. Sobieski entered the Holy League in 1684 of his own free will. He must be held responsible for the consequences. Throughout this biography, I will do my utmost to place Sobieski's actions, his decisions, his fears and his struggles in context. It must have been immensely frustrating for Sobieski to know and appreciate exactly what was wrong with the Commonwealth and why its neighbours seemed to be surpassing it so speedily. To give you an idea of what I mean by that, by the 1670s, the Commonwealth's financial clout was equal to that of Bavaria. Bavaria, even though its population was almost ten times the size of Bavaria. And what was more, the Commonwealth was spending almost 90% of its income on defence. In comparison to the low 60% in France, Spain and even Brandenburg, which itself was famed for having a large army in comparison to its state size. These chasms in production, income and expenditure in the Commonwealth were exacerbated by far too many wars in such a 
concentrated space of time, which never gave the Commonwealth chance to regroup and catch its breath. This was despite the fact that the Crown had generally to depend upon the nobles to provide the soldiers, and to do so required lengthy legislative debates and processes at the Commonwealth's Parliament in Warsaw. The same. So to conclude here, history friends, here's how to know if this biography is for you. Here's how to know if you're a listener, whether forking out that $5 a month is worth it, and if you're a patron, whether you should bother listening at all. Well, three points really justify this whole project. First of all, if you want a better understanding and appreciation of the era in which our main narrative has been passing through, this story here, told through the person of Sobieski and with a focus on a state that was largely aloof from Western European intrigues, this this biography here will be perfect to add more meat on the bones of your 17th century experience. Second, the Commonwealth, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Republic, or whatever you want to call it, it was a fundamentally important player in European relations, and it deserves analysis the same way that the Habsburgs or France or the Netherlands does. If we leave the Commonwealth out of the story we're trying to tell, then we miss the additional details of the wider sets of stories, which taken together make up the very eventful second half of the 17th century. Third, and perhaps most obviously, you should listen to this because it's truly a great story, from which even those with a casual interest in European history or in or even Polish history, can glean great benefit. We hear it when diplomacy fails, and when I say we, I mean me, and my suffering wife, love our stories, and Sobieski's story is one of the best that I've ever come across. And I'm not just saying that, I mean it, I really do. The sheer stamina of Sobieski, and the incredible tenacity and determination he must have possessed to engage in all the campaigns that he did, tells us much about Jan Sobieski the man. By the time he led his winged czars to victory outside the gates of Vienna, Sobieski was 54. He had been king for nearly a decade, and he was reaching the peak not only of his military career, but of his torrid rivalry with the enemies of his homeland. Sobieski's story is as inspiring and entertaining as it is frustrating and tragic, as is our want here at When Diplomacy Fails, since I have yet to see anyone else cover this man in the kind of detail I plan to put out. I feel we have ample opportunities to make Jan Sobieski's story our own. It is my personal hope that you guys will choose to join me for the ride, if for no other reason than when we do come to the Polish History miniseries, major series, next March slash April, we'll at least have some positive memories stored up when everything gets a bit severe and depressing for the unfortunate Poles. So there you have it, Jan Sobieski, King of Poland, the Lion of Europe, the Saviour of Christendom, and all other sorts of lofty titles he went by, is about to become our sole focus on the extra feed for the next three months, right up to the end of 2017, guys. So if you want to see for yourself whether Sobieski really was all that, you know where to go. But for everyone else, my name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all next week when we detail the incredible birth and youth of one of Poland's all-time favourite sons. Thanks for listening, history friends, and I'll see you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.